Our scripture this morning is Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. Uh, good morning. I suppose some of you who got news and notes uh, and saw Psalm 25, you would have expected Kyle to be up here, um, which, I don't know, it's been a couple of years since you've been doing Psalm, I think, right? A couple of years. So he's the sheriff, I'm a deputy uh, today. Um, for those of you that I haven't met personally, my name is Grant Bostrom. I'm member here at Grace, and uh, feel blessed to be uh, sharing God's word with you this morning. Um, I'm going to argue that the main point of this psalm is waiting for the Lord preserves us and postures us to bring him the most glory in our present situation. To unpack this a little further, I believe this psalm models for us how to wait on the Lord during times of struggle, both from internal, or I should say both from external and from internal battles with sin. And if you read news and notes, I asked these questions in the little sermon excerpt, but these are rhetorical. How many of us love to wait? How many times have we been, how many times have we asked our kids to be patient? If we ask the people around us, would they characterize our posture as patient? Does our ability or does your ability to be patient depend, maybe feel this way, but depend on your circumstances? Does it change? Does our patience change based on our circumstances? For example, how patient would you be in the presence of your enemies? David in this psalm teaches and models for us how to glorify God as we wait for him, even in the most dangerous of circumstances. Let me pray. Father, help me this morning unpack Psalm 25 
in a way that turns our hearts towards more patience. Patience for you. Patience for you to show up in our situations such that it would bring you glory, that those that would watch us in our struggles and in our temptations and as our enemies close in on us and we get more patient, may that display ever more clearly your glory um, as we look to Christ for our salvation. So be with us this morning in this text, in your word for us, as we unpack Psalm 25 and the promises that it has for us as Christians to hold on to in the midst of all of our circumstances. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive into the psalm, I think it'd be helpful to place psalm in its historical and literary context. Kyle does this each time as well. Um, This might have a a little bit different twist, but we want to bring you into um, the message of this psalm with some context. This may not be new for some of you, but the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as we know it, was organized into three large sections uh, called the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Uh, Jesus uses that language in, in the Gospels when he's referencing different portions of scriptures. The book of Psalms fell into the writings section of the Old Testament. And one of my professors retitled these sections of the Hebrew canon as the Old Covenant established in reference to the law, the Old Covenant enforced in reference to the prophets, and the Old Covenant enjoyed in reference to the writings. These are currently uh, really broad brushstrokes for very large pieces of Scripture, but I believe they help us rightly interpret the passages and books that are found in each of these Old Testament sections. The book of the Psalms fits into the, the writings section of the Hebrew canon, or as we also see the Psalms uh, rightly display how the Old Covenant was to be enjoyed by God's people and for us as well today. The writings section in the Hebrew canon help us navigate redemptive history through the hearts, minds, and actions of God's redeemed people. If we've spent any, any time in Numbers or Judges or First and Second Kings, we learn very quickly that sin was pervasive, not just throughout the nations that surrounded Israel, but even in their very midst. Most of us probably think of King David when we think about the book of the Psalms, and this is not wrong to some degree. But we also must not miss that the Psalms are a collection of songs and poems and prayers and laments from throughout Israel's history. For example, Psalm 90 is a psalm written from the time of Moses, or Psalm 107, which reflects on the return from exile, potentially written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But what is probably most important <clears throat> for us to know about the psalm, for, uh, about the psalms as a whole, is how the stage is set for us in Psalm one and two. Psalm one holds up the law of the Lord and the blessing that it brings those that meditate on it day and night. Psalm one builds a connection between God's law, man's happiness, and the promise of everlasting life for those that keep it. And it's also in Psalm 2 that we learn of God's anointed king 
that will possess the nations and all earthly powers will be subjected to God's anointed king and that the security that is promised or that, that, that there is security promised for those that take refuge in him. The first two Psalms are like lenses for us that we should see the rest of the Psalms through. God's righteous law and righteous rule through his anointed king. Kyle said something like this a couple weeks ago, but the Psalms, uh, unlike narratives or prophecies or genealogies or letters, provide us with the right language, theology in response to a curse-filled world. The Psalms help us feel rightly about how God is working in our hearts and in this world. The Psalms give us right language to use when approaching God and how to better express our thoughts and emotions to God. Music and poetry have a unique way of describing and unpacking the many layers to our thoughts and emotions. They do this by using metaphors, illustrations, storytelling, and many other literary devices to help articulate feelings and emotions that flow out of all the different events and seasons that our hearts and minds go through as Christians. The book of Psalms gives us inspired and God-glorifying language, God-glorifying ways to express our heart to God in very raw and real ways that, can ho- that we can hold on to during all the highs and lows that this life will have for us. What a gracious and glorious God that we have and serve that would give his people the right words and the right way to approach him when we're struggling with sin or with the sins that have been committed against us or the overflowing joy that comes from obedience or his deliverance. God does not just want us to think rightly about him. Sorry, God does not want us to just think rightly about him. He wants us to feel rightly about him, and the Psalms help us do that. So the rest of the sermon is going to be organized around seven promises that I see in Psalm. If you want to argue with me after, there might be eight. But I think it would be first to be helpful for us to see the overall structure of this Psalm first. Notice uh, the first seven verses are David's uh, prayer of lament to God concerning his current situation. It is then in verses 8 through 14 that the language changes from God being referenced in the second person to God in the third person. Notice that David addresses his prayer to God using you and your. But then in verse 8, the language changes to he and him and the Lord. And then in verse 16, the language moves back to a first-person reference to David as he expresses his current experience of trouble and distress and how he would like the Lord to respond to his current situation. So I see three sections in this psalm. The first section, verses 1 through 7, are David's prayer of deliverance. Then in verses 8 through 14, we have David worshiping God for who he is. And then in verses 15 through 22, David returns to his prayer for deliverance. And it was at this point in my sermon prep that I needed to make a a decision. Do I work through the psalm like I would one of Paul's letters, verse by verse, kind of thought by thought? 
or try to maintain the emotion and the voice of the text by working through the text with a particular focus on the promises that I see David resting in during his time of distress. To some degree, I I might be accomplishing both, but I'd like to walk through this text and hold up the seven promises in this psalm and show how these promises preserve and posture us to bring God the most glory in the midst of our own present situation or distress. And my hope in presenting the seven promises that I see in the psalm is that we would hold on to each one of them when we encounter trouble and distress and sin in our own lives. For some here, you've had to work through some really hard things in life already. For others, you have really hard things that you're working through right now. And then for others, you've not known many troubles. There's certainly grace and blessing in that and the Lord's kindness. But when you do, these promises will keep you. So let's jump in. The first promise I see in Psalm 25 is in verse 3. None who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. None who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. We don't precisely know at what point in David's life uh, he wrote this psalm. Was it when he was being pursued by Saul, who had become jealous of David? Or when he was later pursued by his own son, who desired to take the kingdom from him and Solomon? All we know is that David knows he has enemies, and the threat of them is real from David's perspective. David's soul is, is downcast. His enemies are close, and he needs hope. David turns his heart towards God and asks the Lord not to let his enemies exult over him. And the promise that he is holding on to in this first, uh, onto first, is that none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. And maybe one example where we see this upheld even in David's life is when David was fleeing Saul. And while David and his men were hiding in a cave, David had an opportunity to kill Saul. But he was compelled to not kill Saul because of the Lord's command, do not put out a hand against the Lord's anointed. David had an opportunity to take matters into his own hands and bring an end to the man that was pursuing him. Not only this, but wouldn't to some degree he had been justified as he was just anointed king just a few chapters earlier in the story? Yet, David obeyed God's command to not lay a hand on God's anointed, and he trusted and waited for the Lord to make things right. How many of us, when we're in trouble or in distress, attempt to take things into our own hands? How many of us turn to our own resources and and wisdom to bring resolution to our current struggles? How many of us turn our hearts first to the Lord and wait for his guidance? May we trust in the Lord in the midst of our troubles and wait for him to respond. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we have this promise to hold on to. None who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. Hear that, Christian. None who wait for the Lord will be put to shame. Look at the second promise in verse 9 with me. 
He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Notice some some posture language here. My main point this morning was that waiting for the Lord postures us and preserves us to bring him the most glory in our present situation. Our posture while we're waiting for the Lord ought to be humility. Is this our tendency? (laughs) As we face trouble and distress, do we remain humble? Or do we turn to our own strength or our own gifts, our own resources, our own wisdom when we're struggling with an enemy or a relationship or the loss of a job? And if I may speak concerning my own heart, at times I find it tough to be humble in the midst of conflict and I tend to get impatient, desiring for resolution. I must turn my heart to the Lord, trust in his timing and his resolution and humble myself under his mighty hand. In verse eight, we see that the Lord is good and upright. If we are seeing our hearts rightly, In light of a good and upright God, we are forced to humble ourselves before God. So the posture of one waiting for the Lord is humility. When we humble ourselves before God, his goodness and uprightness are more clearly seen in our situation. And God gets the glory when he fulfills his promise to us. And I might add, God does not just get the glory from us when we praise him for his faithfulness, but he gets glory from displaying his righteousness against the unrighteous who have positioned themselves against God and his people. The third promise is verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Did you hear that? All the paths of the Lord are steadfast and faithfulness. When your soul is downcast because of the distress you are in, are you trusting in the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness? I must admit, my heart is not quick to see the Lord's hand in my troubles. This is why we have Psalms like this, to help us know how to pray and respond to the Lord and to our situation in righteousness. I find my heart slipping into a path that would get me out of trouble. I find myself trying to change direction or change course when trouble comes. The promise we have here is that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Maybe just one more comment. Notice it's not my paths. (laughs) It's the Lord's paths that are steadfast. The paths of the Lord could be a sermon in itself. But let me say this, if you want to understand the paths of the Lord, soak in the scriptures. Spend time with the people of God who have walked faithfully with him for a long time. When you are in distress, or there seems to be no end in sight to the present trouble, are you able to see God's love and faithfulness? We need not look any further than the cross of Christ. In the darkest hour of human history, namely the murder of the Son of God, God was on the throne orchestrating salvation for all who would believe. The greatest sin in history proved to be God's very means of salvation. 
the darkest hour of man's sin became God's greatest hour of redemption. The path to the cross was dark. Jesus was left by his closest friends, rejected by his people, and denied justice from the governing authorities. Yet we read in Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I hope you heard another connection from this verse in Hebrews to our psalm. The cross was such a shameful way to die that it was forbidden for Roman citizens to be killed this way. It was sin and Satan's desire to bring shame to Jesus through the cross. Yet it was through the cross that sin and Satan are defeated. Just as Psalm, just as verse 3 of our psalm promises, they shall be ashamed who are wantingly treacherous. Let us now look at the fourth promise of Psalm 25, which is found in verse 12. The Lord will instruct the man that fears him. Think, think through this promise with me. David in this psalm is, is praying for deliverance from his enemies. But we have David clinging to a promise that those who fear the Lord will receive instruction. David turns his fear of his enemies to fearing God. What a twist. David reminds his heart that fearing God is his only hope for receiving salvation or instruction during his current trouble. Is this our response? Is this our response? (laughs) When we're afraid of the people around us or the situation we're in, do we recalibrate our fear? Or does the fear of our present situation overtake what we should be really fearing? Let's back up a verse for just a minute to verse 11. When our enemies seem to be closing in or, or trouble in our life seems to be growing, do we turn our fear towards God? Maybe another way for us to think about this biblical logic is this. At any moment in our life, should the threat of external sin or sins being committed against us be our greatest fear? I would argue from this text, the answer is no. Our greatest fear should not be our present circumstances, but our position and posture before the Lord. In verse 11, David is reminded of his own sin and asks the Lord to pardon his guilt. We need this psalm to rightly teach our hearts to respond in the midst of fear, to look at God, who God is, and to see our sin for what it is. David turns his heart to God for forgiveness and repentance, even while his enemies are pursuing him and wishing to do harm to him. What a rebuke this was for my heart. When people rise up against me, I, I feel my heart wanting to justify my actions or my righteousness over theirs. My heart is inclined to rest in my own righteousness for security and not in the reality that I'm a sinner just like my enemy. Oh, how quickly bitterness and anger and self-righteousness leaves our heart when we see our hearts for what they are in light of who God is. 
Our posture while we're in distress should be one of confession and repentance. Our greatest enemy is not out there. It is the sin that is living in us. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. David's living that reality in this psalm. As the enemy creeps towards us, may we creep towards God in a posture of repentance and humility because we know that God is steadfast and faithful to instruct the humble and we will not be put to shame. This brings us to the fifth promise in this psalm, verse 13. His soul shall abide in well-being. When we fear God above all else, Repent from our sins when it is revealed to us. Remain humble. Turn to the Lord for instruction. Our soul will abide in well-being. Hear this. Even in the midst of great distress and trouble, we can hold on to the promise that our soul will, will abide in well-being. What a promise this is. Our soul does not need to remain downcast. David prays in verse 1 for his soul to be lifted up. We receive the promise in verse 13 here, for our soul shall abide in well-being when we're trusting in the Lord, leaning on his wisdom and instruction, remaining humble, and confessing our sin. Our hearts get heavy and downcast when things don't go our way or when other people's hearts turn against us. But we have this promise in Psalm 25 that our hearts do not need to remain downcast in the midst of trouble. We can turn to the Lord and receive the rest our soul needs. We can trust in God and his promise of faithfulness and steadfastness no matter what the present situation looks like. And I'd like to stop here for just a minute. If there's anyone here that is not fearing the Lord and their soul is not resting in the salvation of Jesus, turn to him now. These promises we have already observed in the promises that are to come in this psalm are for those that are in covenant relationship with Jesus. We cannot hold on to these promises if we're not in covenant with God. And Jesus' death on the cross fulfills all of God's promises And when we're trusting alone in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and him as the only hope of salvation, we can hold tightly to the promises in this psalm. The sixth promise for us in Psalm 25 is in verse 13. His offspring shall inherit the land. You might be saying, how is this promise You might be saying, how is this a promise for the new covenant believer? Let's first answer, who is his offspring? Who's that referring to? I believe his offspring refers to the one who fears the Lord and his children. We must not miss the allusion to the promise of God made to Abraham in Genesis 17. If you've been here at Grace, we've been going through Genesis now for quite some time. Days spent a sermon on this. So if you'd like a little bit more impact, it's, it's out on the, the website. 
But Abraham in Genesis 17, listen to this. It reads, and I will establish my covenant between you and you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Notice that the covenant that God gave or gives to Abraham in Genesis 17 includes his offspring and land. We saw that in our text. As we return to our psalm, God's promise of Abraham's offspring inheriting the land is being fulfilled. David himself is resting in the promise that God gave to Abraham thousands of years prior to his reign. And do we see in verse 10 that God shows himself faithful and steadfast in love towards those that keep his covenant and testimonies? God does require obedience for us as we hold on to these promises. So how is this promise of our offspring inheriting the land a promise that new covenant believers can hold on to? I'd like to argue how offspring in the new covenant is not exclusively a biological relationship. It wasn't in the old either, but as we unpack it in the new. We read in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29, that in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You see what Paul did here in Galatians. Believers are heirs of Abraham, the heirs of God through faith. It is not through the physical seed of man that are the true offspring of Abraham. True offspring of Abraham and God are determined through faith in Jesus. So let me say it this way. According to Genesis, or according to Galatians 3, Jesus is the offspring to which God ultimately intended to secure all of his blessings in. Therefore, I take this promise to mean our promise here in, in Psalm 25 to mean that those that are heirs with Christ, those who have faith in Jesus are the true offspring of God. But what, what about the land? In one sense, that the land should be understood as the place that God's people inhabit, the place that God meets with his people, and the place where God's rule is established and enjoyed. It's the place where right worship happens. David is holding on to the promise that this covenant faithfulness will prove an inheritance to his offspring. So also in the new creation, Jesus' faithfulness secured our inheritance in heaven. So, The land promise was secured once Christ came and Jesus inaugurated the new covenant and the new land promise for those trusting in Christ, which is the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. The promised offspring to Abraham and David that would sit on the throne forever is Christ and it is through Christ. Sorry, lost my spot here. 
So David's holding on to the promise that his covenant faithfulness will prove an inheritance for his offspring. So also in the new covenant, Jesus' faithfulness secured our inheritance in heaven. So the land promise was secured once Christ came. And Jesus inaugurated the new covenant and the new land for those trusting in Christ. And we saw this and we see this in Revelation 21. The promised offspring to Abraham and David that would sit on the throne forever is Christ. And it is through Christ that God has given him all things. At the end of time, Jesus will return and usher in the new heavens and the new earth such that we will inherit the land that Christ purchased by his blood and brought us all into through his death and resurrection. Let us return to Psalm 25 for the final promise that David is clinging to. Verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. When we fear the Lord, we are promised the Lord's friendship. Put yourself in David's shoes. Put yourself in a dangerous situation. What would bring what would bring relief? What would help your anxiety or your depression in the midst of such great trouble? How about an ally? How about a friend? What a glorious promise this is that God would reach out in friendship as we are going through a great struggle, great struggle. What makes this promise even more comforting is this is not just a friend that is going to listen and sit with you, be that friend that there's grace and blessing there. This is a friend that created the universe and spoke everything into being that put to death the Egyptian army without the Israelites lifting a finger or destroying the walls of Jericho with the blasts of trumpets. This is no ordinary friendship. This is a friendship with the creator and sustainer of all things. Waiting for the Lord preserves us and postures us to bring him the most glory in our present situation. According to this psalm and these promises, we're called to wait on the Lord in humility, fear, covenant faithfulness, and confession. When the sins of this world encroach upon us and our posture looks like humility, fear of God, obedience, confession, we make God look glorious because we are not shaken. More than this, we display God as the unshakable sustainer of our lives and souls. When we fear God over man, we display his demand on our life and the value we place on pleasing him over against the rulers and authorities of this earth. When we confess our sins, we recognize that our greatest need is not physical deliverance, but spiritual deliverance. This minimizes the control that the threats of man can have on our hearts. And we are free to love and obey God above all else. Notice in verse 21 that integrity and uprightness in the midst of trouble preserves us as we wait for God. 
The call this morning for us from Psalm 25 is to seek the Lord in the midst of trouble. Trust in his covenantal promises and his faithfulness. And he will instruct us in the way that we should go as we enjoy his friendship along the paths that he leads us and embrace the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus while we fully while we will fully enjoy these in the new heavens and the new earth